0: You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NeuroFrontiers, produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. Your host is Dr. Anthony Alessi. On January 8th, Arizona Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords was the victim of an assassination attempt. The assailant shot her in the head at close range. This was followed by a succession of medical interventions that continue to unfold. Dr. William M. Copeland, Associate Professor of Neurology and Neurological Surgery at Wayne State University and Director of Neurotrauma and the Neurological Intensive Care Unit at Detroit Receiving Hospital in Detroit, Michigan, joins us today to discuss recovery from gunshot wounds to the head. Dr. Copeland, welcome to Reach MD.
1: Thank you very much, sir.
0: Dr. Copeland, if you could share with our audience, only 5% of people survive gunshot wounds to the brain. What was done at the point of care that enabled Congresswoman Giffords to survive?
1: Well, I get to be honest with you. One of the things that I think is very important in discussing this issue just today and the specifics is I do not know the Congresswoman. I don't know the specifics of her medical care or pre-hospital care. So I will speak in generalizations of things that can be done and things that in such a situation that your listeners or others around them might do if I can take that liberty. Thank you. Please do. So I don't know anything that went on there, but one of the the things, obviously, that becomes very difficult, particularly in dealing with civilian gunshot wounds, which is really what I'll limit this discussion to, is securing the scene, first of all. So it's difficult to take care of people if there's a shooter still on the rampage. So one of the things that's always important is to remind people to be careful in that respect. The other thing that becomes very important is anytime something, if there is something lodged in the head and partially out of it, is don't remove it. Only do that in sort of observed, careful circumstances like an operating room. That may just be, if you will, plugging the dike from a great deal of blood loss in otherwise. So those would be things just, you know, to keeping your head about you the other things then that just become essentially getting people stabilized getting people essentially out of the situation there is not much you're going to do for the internal wounds that occur with a gunshot wound to the head other than you know sort of securing the outside if you will making it palatable you can't reduce blood loss by putting your finger in the dike as it were
0: well it sounds like the overwhelming goal is to get somebody to a hospital as quickly as possible. In the case of Congresswoman Giffords, it's reported, and we don't know if it's factual or not, that it only took 30 minutes to get her from the site of injury to the operating room. That's an exceptionally short period of time. When a patient arrives in the emergency room, what's the next thing that needs to get done?
1: Well, I would like to think that, and I know it's not the case, but I'd love to think that we're perfect every time, and that's exactly what we do every time. The first thing that at least is going to happen for most things is going to be damage assessment, and it's going to be securing the situation. And the situation now I'm talking about securing is our vital signs. It's getting access to be able to give patients medications for sedation, for anesthesia for surgery should they need it. It's going to be getting a roadmap to follow on the way to surgery, a CAT scan, to see what the damage is and what surgically could be done. And get in control of somebody's breathing and their airway. So, those are always going to be the first things that we're going to do when we see somebody, you know, assessing the, what are sometimes the ABCs, the airway, their ability to breathe, and their circulation. And the other piece then will be how much blood loss has gone on, do some need to be replaced. Those are the fast things. We'd like to think we can keep that sort of assessment and somebody into the operating room, you know, in 30 minutes every time. The reality is that sometimes it takes a little bit longer but we like to really keep it under what we call the golden hour after trauma to really get people together.
0: Are those numbers particularly good for areas or hospitals designated as trauma centers? Is that a key element?
1: What it means to be a trauma center in particular is that you've expressed some interest, you as a hospital organization and, and its physicians and the commitment of administration and nursing and resources to caring for the injured patient there are three levels of trauma center level one being the highest level and that's most likely where someone who has a gunshot wound to the head is going to be taken they may go to a level two but neurosurgical expertise is available in-house at level one trauma centers so the commitment then that the hospital has is that they were going to have resources they're going to have organization you're going to have people who are available in-house they're you're not out of the hospital, and it's going to be a few hours till they can show up. And so, that whole team doing the things that I described earlier control of the airway, medications, CAT scans, an operating room that's ready those are things that are key elements of level one trauma centers.
0: You've talked about bleeding already being a big problem, but swelling is another huge problem that we face whenever treating a traumatic brain injury of any type. How do you approach the problem of swelling in the acute? Phase.
1: Can I act a, just take a step back on the bleeding question, because the first, the first time was the bleeding that's coming from someone's head. If you will, I, I like to call it the Hollywood bleeding. And the Hollywood bleeding is what makes a mess all over the podium and the stage and is what is indelible in people's minds. The real bleeding that becomes the trouble, and this is the issue with swelling as well is that the skull is a protective closed box. It is supposed to be. It's supposed to protect this soft brain from the outside world. And the problem is, is that when bleeding occurs within it, or when swelling occurs within it, anything that begins to fill this box up, for your audience, I'd ask just to imagine blowing up a balloon inside of a box. Eventually, you're going to run out of room. And to keep adding volume to that balloon, more and more air it's going to squeeze out of the box. And what's going to happen, whether there be a, a, if I may call it a chunk of blood or a blood clot that forms either within brain tissue or between the brain and the skull, that that's going to push on the brain. When swelling occurs, it's going to push on the brain. The brain can only be pushed so much until the brain will either strangle itself from its blood supply, because there's no more room left in the box, or will actually try to squeeze itself out of the box a process that is lethal that we call herniation. The swelling that happens, and, you know, give another analogy for your audience is, imagine slamming your hand in a car door. Please don't try this at home. It hurts a lot the first day. The next day, though, it begins to swell and turn funny colors. And that gets even worse the day after. And the hand, if you pull on the skin on the back of your hand, as it stretches. But there's then no room inside that box for that kind of stretching to keep going. So there's the initial blood clot that can occur, that's the blood trapped either within brain tissue or between the brain and the skull, or there's the swelling that can occur then in the hours to days after such an injury, and that that also can lead to the brain, if you will, strangling itself from its blood supply.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessing, and joining us to discuss the treatment and recovery of patients with gunshot wounds to the head is Dr. William Copeland. Dr. Copeland is Associate Professor of Neurology and Neurological Surgery at Wayne State University and Director of Neurotrauma and the Neurological Intensive Care Unit at Detroit Receiving Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. Dr. Copeland... At the break, we were talking a little bit about intracerebral edema and swelling. When treating a patient with any type of traumatic brain injury, how do you approach the problem of swelling?
1: There are sort of, if you will, three things that we have to deal with. One is, if I can put it this way, is prevention, because there are potentially some things we can do towards that, but we're not very good at that yet. So I'm going to limit it mostly to the issues of treatment and damage control so the treatment directly is to try and get if the water is going from outside of the vessels and into the interstitium of the brain is to get it back out and for doing that the particular best methods that we think we have at this time are the issues of diuretics mannitol has been everyone's love gold standard and nobody's really sure why an insoluble sugar, the theory is that you will put mannitol inside of the blood vessels, it will pass through the tissue in question, it will soak the water back up, deliver it to the kidneys, and the kidneys will release the mannitol and the fluid back out into the world and everyone will be happy. A couple issues that come up with that is, remember that it's circulating everywhere in the body. Remember also that it is a a rather large molecule and that its reflectance is not perfect, meaning that some of it will leak out and some will leak into tissues. And so if you can look under the microscope, and this will tell you of course how the patients did, at autopsy of some brains of repeated doses of mannitol, we can see the mannitol crystals out in the brain tissue soaking up water right where we're trying to get rid of it. So it's not perfect. Another concept is the use of hypertonic salt solutions, and this has been the focus of our research here with my compatriots, Denise Roney, Greg Norris, and others. And that is where we set up a situation where the tonicity of the bloodstream is much higher than that of the surrounding tissue. Soak up the water and let it get passed on to the kidney again. The potential advantage here is that the reflectance of Sodium is higher than that of mannitol, meaning reflecting off the wall, staying in the blood vessel, so that we can get this to work, we think, you know, hopefully a little longer and maybe a little more durable in effect. And that gets into the point of then prevention. So one of the things we can do as treatment is we can say, you have all this swelling, we're going to give you a pulse dose of mannitol or a pulse dose of 23.4% sodium chloride as concentrated as we can get it at room temperature. Soak that water in, pass it onto the kidney and everybody we will be happy. The prevention side says that maybe what we'll do is we'll set up a hypertonic state. We'll leave you with enough of that salt in your bloodstream, higher than the normal amount. And we'll just leave it there and we'll let it continue to hold on to water and continue not to let it leak out into the brain tissue. That's been the focus of some of our research. We're, we're still not perfect yet. We've done uh, phase two studies and are gearing up, hopefully, to do a phase three study. But at least preliminarily, it looks like that people are about three times less likely to rebound after they get the hypertonic salt solution than when they're treated with mannitol and a normal salt solution.
0: When we get out of the acute phase of treating traumatic brain injury... What are your views as far as early neurologic rehabilitation?
1: There are, why do you say my views, because my views are obviously tainted by the people that I've worked with, Um, and that goes back in through my training. How we play the game based on those biases are, we actually have the physiatrist involved in our intensive care unit, often the day after admission, but the latest I can think of is usually by about day three after injury so that they are getting to know the patient, what the potential needs might be, what the other associated injuries might be. So Someone, for instance, after a motor vehicle collision who has a brain injury and broken legs, or after a gun was shot in the head and in the upper arm. We actually are very involved in getting the physical therapist through ranging of motion, the occupational therapist through splinting as it might be necessary, The speech therapist, as soon as someone is able to communicate, both for their issues of ability to swallow, ability to communicate, but also their cognition, which speech therapists are extremely helpful with. The rehab docs very often will make their first assessments, and we'll begin to get plans together. What is the treatment plan going to be long-term? We will involve them in decisions to give stimulant medications to try and help people wake up a little bit or other medication varieties to deal with agitation, for instance.
0: Bill, how do you see the treatment of brain injuries changing in the future?
1: One of the biggest things that uh, I think will be, hopefully, at a first a system level, and that that is everybody will do everything the same wrong way every time. And what I mean by that is that there is still a lot of practice variation. Everybody says, well, and I went to school in Texas, so I always have to bring out sort of the the Texas cowboy surgeon, as I was called in the training and say, well, you know, that's the way I've always done it. And that used to work actually for local things, but medicine is bigger than local issues. And we have to look at standardizing treatments because only by doing it that same way each time will we find out what might actually work or that which is clearly harmful. That's one thing I would hope that we continue to strive for.
0: I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. William Copeland, Associate Professor of Neurology and Neurological Surgery at Wayne State University and Director of Neurotrauma at the the Neurological Intensive Care Unit at Detroit Receiving Hospital. Dr. Copeland, thanks again for being our guest today on NeuroFrontiers.
1: My pleasure, Dr. Alessi. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. NeuroFrontiers is produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology, For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.